In August 2018, a 15-year-old Swedish girl began spending her days outside Parliament instead of sitting in school to demand urgent action on the climate crisis. Day after day, she held up signs and refused to move. Soon after, students from all over the world began to do the same, and the global climate school strike movement began. Today, everyone knows about Greta Thunberg. She has spoken at the UN Climate Change Conference, been Times Person of the Year, and is included in Forbes lists of the world's 100 most powerful women. But she's not the first teenager to change the world. We have John of Arc, who at age 13 led a French army in a major victory against the English. Malala Yousafzai, who at age 17 became the youngest recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. And Camela Teoli, whose courageous role in the fight for workers' rights changed the life of thousands of Americans. History is full of child activists. The power of young activists has radically grown because social media allows them to raise their voices like never before. Additionally, the COVID-19 pandemic has forced adults into close confinement with their children, with no escape from their concerns. There is no doubt that children and young adults have fundamentally changed the conversation. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the Pictet Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. Produced in partnership with UNICEF, today's episode will discuss youth activism and the green economy in Africa. If you like our episodes, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Many, if not most people today, have a hard time grasping the enormous impact that climate change will have on our surroundings and society. But for the people of Africa, this seemingly ungraspable enemy is already present. Over the past years, extreme climate events have displaced thousands of Africans. Children and young adults are the least responsible for this crisis, but will bear the most of its consequences. The new generation is putting pressure on corporations and governments to fix what they've broken. But is it enough? Joining us to discuss are Dr. Samuel Godfrey, UNICEF's water and sanitation advisor, Lisa Banda, climate activist from Malawi, member of the National Youth Network on Climate Change, and the Malawi-Scotland Partnership. And finally, Mary Therese Barton, head of emerging market debt at Big Day Asset Management. Christine Sandstrom, director of the Big Day Foundation, moderates this discussion. So I'd like to open our discussion with a rather personal question. We all tend to feel overwhelmed by the scope and complexity of the challenges that we're facing today. Yet you and your respective fields have opted to act and contribute to make a difference. What motivates your engagement and your work? Samuel, maybe can I start with you? Sure, absolutely. And, and good morning from, uh, from Nairobi, from Kenya. So I think we will remember uh, the 1984 uh, images that we saw of children that were affected by hunger in Ethiopia. It was pasted across the television sets around the world uh, in 1984. At that time, uh, I was a, a young boy and I was watching that on TV. And um, I think it really motivated me at the time to say, look, there's clearly an issue here with food. There's an issue here with water. 
and there's a need for expertise. So about 10 years later, I volunteered actually with an NGO uh, in the early 90s to work really as a field engineer on sort of developing water supply solutions for drought affected areas of the north of Uganda. And really that gave me a taste, you know, a real taste of how much of a difference water particularly can make in the lives of people. So three engineering and science degrees later and 25 years later of living on this continent, I've really evolved in my enthusiasm uh, and motivation for this. And really the interest lies, you know, in those areas, water, environment, renewable energy, waste, the circular economy. These are all things which really get me out of bed in the morning uh, and are things that motivate me in my job and in my life. Thank you for sharing that, Samuel. Lisa, what is your story? I remember when I was back at my grandmother's place in Zomba. Uh, that was in 2014. Uh, we went there and then we found that winds, thunderstorms had destroyed the house. They had even removed the roof and we had to go to pick up the sand so that it can be rebuilt and everything. And then we had the support that was there. Yes, we had the relief and everything from the CSOs and organizations and even government. But that was not enough because people needed to be aware that there needs to be an environment which can support or to overcome the impacts that are coming in due to climate change. And when I was back in college, I was given this opportunity to be in an environmental club where we had to work with like-minded people to discuss about issues with regarding to climate change, the environment and everything that revolves around young people and how they have been affected. One of the things that came out from this is that I was able to represent the youth and speak to the minister during a national youth conference. And from there, we addressed an audience that was willing to work with us as young people. We addressed people that were in the field which I didn't even know that this is possible. We have this support from these people that are around us. And that motivated me because I realized that when we have this available resource for young people to act, to address these leaders that are there, then why not engage them? Why not raise awareness for more people to get involved in the fight against climate change? Because it's not just about us doing something about it. It is also the leaders who have the decisions to make with regards to our future. But we need to get involved in this. And that is where my activism started, because I realized that I cannot just sit, be sitting down. I need to be in these platforms, engaging and making what I do known to the rest of the world and even in my country. So, yeah, every day that I wake up, people really even call me that yeah, miss climate change. And yeah, I'm proud of that because it's about the passion. It's not about what you gain from this, but it's about what the environment gains. It's not only about me, it's about everyone. Thank you. You can really feel your passion. It's, it's really transcribing. Marie-Therese, um, can we hear from you? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, that, that's hard to follow. But um, I won't quite go back to the 80s, but if I go back to the 90s um, when I was back at school, I was at a school which was a community of schools worldwide. And they had schools both in East and West Africa. 
and that resulted in me going on some cultural exchanges at a very formative age in Ghana, in the Upper West region, and also in Uganda, around Kampala. So I spent three summers between 18 and 21 living in communities, making friends, um, living with young people, my peers. And I really got to say it really weighed on me that really by accident of birth, economic opportunities look so different. And that really um, informed my area of study. So at university, I focused on development finance, development economics, politics of sub-Saharan Africa. And my seat now, um, I'm head of emerging debt, a team of 17 across London, Singapore and New York. And look, it's perhaps not the seat I expected to be in at 18, but here we now manage 10 billion investing in emerging governments across Asia, sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, Latin America. And really when I think about what we're doing is we are investing in the long-term future of these countries um, by the nature of the asset class that I invest in. And I also have a great privilege of meeting with the governments and the officials in these countries to talk about the long-term future. And given that context of my study and my experiences, that's really inspiring and really wanting to think about the change that we can have on the investment side. Thank you for that, Marie-Thérèse. So we've heard about the droughts, um, and Samuel, you referred to the 1980s. There was also a lot of droughts in the more recently, especially in the Horn of Africa. I'm just thinking of 2017, where the lives of millions have been impacted, as well as many other recurring natural disasters that are brought about by climate change. Samuel, as a UNICEF Regional Water and Sanitation Advisor for this region, can you tell us how climate change is actually affecting these areas? Yeah, so, I mean, Africa, as we know, is, is responsible for only, you know, 1% of the, the global greenhouse gas emissions. But yet, as you, as you correctly say, is, you know, heavily impacted in terms of climate shocks. You know, it suffers, in fact, four times more climate shocks uh, than any other continent in the world. And in, in 2020, UNICEF actually published a report um, entitled The Climate Crisis and Children, and it showed that since 1980, there's been a six-fold increase in the number of droughts, floods uh, and cyclones. You know, to name a few, you mentioned there the, the La Nina and El Nino, uh, which were two of the major impacts that we had over the last decade, which, of course, affected, you know, from southern Africa, from Madagascar, uh, Mozambique into Malawi, Zimbabwe and, and Zambia. But also, of course, um, you know, the Horn of Africa as well in Somalia uh, and, uh, and, and Ethiopia. Um, and interestingly, you know, the, the sort of shift and the changes that are happening within the African continent were quite well highlighted in the recent IPCCC report, which talked about, you know, six-fold increase now in the number of shocks. And clearly, you know, that is very much uh, evident uh, within, within this region. So, I mean, yes, as UNICEF, our interest is how does this impact young people? You know, that's really what we're about. And we undertook a, a poll, actually, which was the largest poll ever undertaken in the world of 120,000 uh, young people in 2020 to sort of find out from, from them what are the major things that they're worried about when it comes to the climate crisis. And just to share with you, you know, a few, a few issues, I mean, really 15% of the respondents were indicating that the major area they feel they can impact on as young people is in terms of recycling of waste. It's something they feel is within their control. As Lisa said, you know, a lot of this has to go down to local action, has to come down to what a household can do, because 
even with government support, sometimes the link between central systems and households may be a bit weak. So recycling is something that the young people feel they can do. There was also a real push, 16% of young people saying that, um, you know, there's, there's a possibility to reduce the consumption of natural resources. Uh, of course, as a water engineer, I've spent my life exploring and developing water systems in this continent. And I'm delighted to hear that young people now are thinking that this is important to prioritize because, you know, going back a number of years, it really wasn't something that was seen as important uh, by young people. But maybe, you know, finally, the, the last thing that came out from that study was that, you know, 47% of, of young people were citing that they want, like Lisa, they want to become more actively involved in advocating for, you know, environmentally friendly approaches uh, within, their, within their countries, their communities and their households. Lisa, maybe a question for you. We know that there's an extraordinary population surge across Africa. We have a UNICEF report also that mentions that by 2055, Africa child's population will be the highest of most continents, with around 66% of the population being under the age of 18. How do you see climate change affecting the young people in Africa? With the impacts of climate change that we are experiencing, we talk about what Summer also said the floods, we have the droughts, and even now we have the strange pests that are going on. These all bring about the effects which affect the food provisions in our families. We have the food insecurity issues. We also have the loss of the infrastructure that we use. Talk about schools, talk about hospitals, all those, even when it comes to clean water and the safety, the basic needs that we need in our daily lives, all these affect us. And when it comes to young people, all these affect how we lead our lives. When you want to go to school, but then your school has been destroyed due to floods, where do you go? Then you're sent to the evacuation centers. But even even the schools that are there, and then you have the houses that have been uh, destroyed, people are then taken from their homes to the schools. And then we have that disruption of the schools, the education. But you still want those children in the districts, in the areas that have been affected by these floods, to still also sign in or even sit for the same exams that other people who have not experienced these challenges, uh, they will be measured with the same uh, examinations. Those are the inequalities that we are facing. Maybe, Marita, I'll turn to you, because I know you feel also very strongly about education, especially girls' education. And how do you factor this in when you um locking into your work or into your investments? Is there an angle that you take? Yeah, it's not just an element. It's not just an angle. We really need to consider this for the future outcomes in these countries. And when I think back over my career, 20 years now, doing this, I always feel we were looking at these countries with one eye blinkered. We were looking at the fiscal accounts, the debt levels, speaking to the central bank, government officials. But what we weren't doing was getting a sense of the long-term challenges in these countries and really understanding the resources in these countries and understanding the importance of youth and education in driving change in these countries. And I think over the last few years, I think that has really started to change. And just to give a little bit of background to the asset class that I do invest in, it's fixed income, which is long term. Um, countries in sub-Saharan Africa will issue debt 10 years, 20 years, 30 years 
in nature. So if we're thinking about that as an investor, we also need to be thinking about those long-term growth challenges that we should be addressing. So everything Lisa has been saying is hugely relevant to how we should be thinking about emerging countries. Kilimanjaro is Africa's highest peak. At 5,895 meters above sea level, it survived eons of civilizations. Thousands of tourists flock Tanzania every year to undertake the dangerous climb to the top. Its characteristic white cap has become a symbol for the country. But today, the beautiful glacier that has covered the volcano for the last 11,000 years since the last ice age is melting. Climatologists predict if we continue at our current rate, it will be gone by 2033. The increase in heat and dryness in East Africa seems to be the main culprit, although deforestation might also be playing a role. The first of many symbolic victims of the climate emergency. I'd like to focus and get back to you, Lisa, on, uh, on the climate activism and the voices of the youth, more specifically the role that they're playing in the different African countries. One question I had is, do activists like Greta Thunberg serve as a role model for young people in Africa? Greta really serves as a role model in terms of our form of activism. I could say, for example, in my country, Malawi, we are in a situation where leaders may not take uh, the issue of climate change seriously as they put it out on paper. That is where you want that radicalism to be there. That is, that is where you want them to understand that the time is now, you see? And in most of our leaders in, in Africa, they don't really focus on issues that will give them the long-term benefit because, you know, with the term, they only focus on what people will see now and will they be able to elect me into government. But with climate change... We need to invest in the long term. We talk about sustainability issues when it comes to adaptation and even mitigation. So it's that activism where we want uh, leaders to be able to take us seriously, to be able to invest in the long term for the future. Because as young people, that is what we are focusing on. Samuel, how does UNICEF promote climate activism in young people in Africa? I know there's a, there's a lot that you're doing with a lot of different young people across Africa. What does this look like? You know, we need to situate young people within the green economy, you know, and understand what the green economy is. And as far as our definition goes for, for UNICEF, I mean, our sort of definition of green economy is basically low carbon, you know, resource efficient and socially inclusive. And when we say socially inclusive, that means that, of course, if 70% of our population in Africa currently, by 2050 at least, are youth and children, then they need to be the absolute heart and centre of any green economy or any green economy approach that we're developing. So one of the key things that we've been working on is, is a, essentially a virtual application called YOMA. And what YOMA is, it's a volunteerism application whereby it uses a kind of virtual cryptocurrency for young people to exchange their skills. There are many, many adaptation issues that we need young people to be involved in, but there's very, very little remuneration for that. 
So what Yoma does, and this proved to be extremely useful during COVID-19, where importation of food and other assets was a challenge for the continent because of the closing of airspaces and closing of ports. Yoma essentially enables young people to log on to their mobile phone and to offer a service, and it can be a climate-related service. And as remuneration for that service, they would then be offered another service by someone else. So, for example, you might find, and we did uh, a lot of this during the COVID-19, that young people want to volunteer for community-based agriculture or community-based erosion control or community-based water management. And in return for that, you then find that you have someone else that's willing to offer them services on how to develop their curriculum vitae, their CV, to apply for a job or how to offer them an internship within a paid employment. So these are some of the areas really of focus um, that we're looking at in Yoma, which will really help to scale up some of these kind of climate-related, green economy, youth-focused interventions. Thank you. Now, that's really interesting. And using technology to, to spread knowledge and to connect is something that, that is incredibly powerful. Uh, maybe, Marie-Thérèse, can you tell us how you see the green economy and how are you interested in it in Africa? Absolutely, Christine. We'd agree with Samuel's definition. We think of it really as a resilient economy that provides a better quality of life for all. So this inclusivity is really important, but within the limits of the planet, you know, the ecological limits of the planet and that having to be at the centre as well. So centering the youth and centering the looking at solutions for the huge challenge we're all facing. In terms of how I approach it from my work and how our team approach it, it's been made a whole lot easier in the last few years by the development of green bonds and social bonds by sovereign governments. So just as an example, at the end of last year, Egypt issued a green bond. So that was the first North African country to do so a green bond framework where you see overlaps on SDGs, both on the social side and on the climate side. And we're expecting Ghana to be coming with a green bond in the next few months as well, with a very well thought out green bond framework. And I think where that really helps previously when we would invest in a government's bond, we'd not really have any see-through in terms of the use of proceeds. But now we're given a roadmap. So when we go into the debt management offices of these countries, we're able to talk about these longer term issues facing the countries and how we see that impacting and talk to them about progress against their frameworks in terms of the projects as well. And I think that's incredibly powerful as an investor. And we're working with multilaterals. So in a couple of weeks, I'll be attending a roundtable at the World Bank where we're going to be talking with other emerging debt investors about what do we need to see and how could we help grow this market? Because ultimately, as we've been hearing from Samuel and Lisa, these things are really going to matter to the long-term outcome of these countries. That if we could target the investment in these areas on youth and education, but also addressing climate change and the impact that's going to be having on young people, that could be a really big sea change in terms of emerging markets outcomes in terms of growth and yes centering the youth again i think so often in emerging markets we're not focusing on that most important resource which is the human and you know to use the economic term human capital in terms of how we think about it in human development so hugely relevant looking out into the lush garden from her balcony the rain queen breathes the fresh air produced by some of the world's largest cicad trees 
surrounding her royal compound. Only a young woman, Queen Maljaji bears the weight of the legacy she's inherited. She's the latest descendant of a powerful matriarchy in Balobedu, a people from the Limpopo province of South Africa, who believe Maljaji, the South African goddess of rain, lives within the body of a young woman. Rain queens are believed to have special powers, controlling and influencing rain patterns. Queen Mojaji wonders what her female ancestors who presided over the annual rainmaking ceremony since the 16th century would think of the unprecedented floods, intense droughts, and locust plagues that have destroyed crops and villages alike all over the region in the past years. Despite their youth, rain queens throughout history have held power. They've been visited by presidents during apartheid, held close relations with Nelson Mandela, and were even the inspiration of the Marvel Comics character Storm. And while the last queen died in 2005 at only 27 years of age, a new queen is expected to be crowned when she turns 18. As the goddess of rain in a time of climate crisis, we expect her reign will surely be stressed. Samuel, I had a question for you um, on circular economy. I, I know you did some studies or there some reports around Côte d'Ivoire and circular economy. Is this something that, that uh, UNICEF is looking into? And can you explain that to us? One of the areas, as you mentioned, that we are focused on is how to turn waste into wealth and to try to have a circular economy which is associated with the waste which is being generated in different countries. And one very practical example is, as you mentioned, some work we've been doing over the last decade in Cote d'Ivoire, where, you know, the construction of schools is not only against the net zero principle, given that, you know, concrete and steel are one of the biggest polluting industries in the world. And therefore, it doesn't make sense from an environmental perspective to construct schools with concrete. But secondly, we have a huge problem with the, the waste which is going into the ocean and which is polluting the ocean with plastic and is, of course, affecting the tourism industry. So in Côte d'Ivoire, uh, what we have done is we have put in place with youth activists groups that collect uh, UPVC bottles that are used for, for drinking water, other forms of plastic bags, and we smelt them down and we recycle them into blocks, into li literally Lego blocks that can then be used to build environmentally friendly schools which of course will then benefit the children because they will have a more um, air-conditioned, if you like, uh, naturally air-conditioned building. But also from a perspective of getting access to education, we will not have to then invest in either importation of materials or get into a situation where we're supporting in many ways what is considered to be one of the largest polluting sectors, which is the construction sector. And I'm saying that as a civil engineer, so you can imagine that's quite a difficult uh, uh, scar to bear. But I have to say that this uh, circular economy principle can be applied across the board. And this example, which I'm mentioning here, which is really about waste to wealth, if you like, a waste to wealthy education, is one example that we're very proud of in UNICEF. And it's one that we are expanding from West Africa to currently a number of countries in East Africa, and certainly to, to Southern Africa. And I hope even that Lisa one day will be able to see and witness some of those schools uh, in, in Malawi uh, as well in the future. I just wanted to add that uh, with regards to West, we are also trying to recycle some of the West 
uh, to be able to produce uh, renewable energies that is uh, through formulation of briquettes, uh, which are now a form of energy, uh, energy source that we are now uh, utilizing and letting people aware of this so that they can be utilizing it. Yes, but it is not, not really upscaled that much, so the adoption rate is really low. But what Samara said is also really very good and what we would like to see here. There's one more thing I wanted to touch on, um, and this is displacement and migration. We know that there's been a lot of movements of population across countries, within the countries, a lot of movements across borders, but also a lot of movements from rural to urban areas. And there's some big, big, big cities developing across Africa. And, and we know that these are considered what you call climate hotspots. And in these cities, there's a lot of young people, especially living in the slums, and they don't have access to education or proper education. There's problems of water, sanitation. Which are these cities that we're talking about? Um, maybe, Samuel, do you, do you want to answer that? Yeah, I mean, recently um, we undertook a study with UN Habitat on the uh, population explosion and urbanization across the African continent. And actually, the largest explosion that's happening is not in the primary cities or the slums. Uh, it's in the secondary towns. That's where we are seeing the biggest explosion of population. And in fact, that is where the biggest investment opportunity is in Africa, because there you would be investing directly in towns which are being planned, towns that could be more you know, linked with the green economy, those towns where you could actually have more adaptive solutions to climate. And it's much easier to invest in those towns than it is to try to retrofit uh, solutions uh, into slums. But the very specific uh, cities uh, or larger cities uh, that are affected are, interestingly, coastal cities. So the largest populations are really on the coast around the entire continent. And of course, many of them have been affected by sea level rises because of the, the, the climate impacts. And also many of them have been affected by the change in, in fish stocks, um, you know, which is occurring in fisheries, which of course has a direct impact also on, on nutrition. So there we're talking about very large cities. For example, you mentioned Cote d'Ivoire, but Nigeria, for example, Lagos uh, or, or, or Senegal, uh, Dakar, or even Cape Town. I mean, some of the interesting uh, experiences that happen with the water crisis in Cape Town uh, is also directly related to the, the climate crisis in Africa. So it is in many ways a challenge, but I'd also turn it into an opportunity. You know, the very fact that you've got a large number of relatively educated people that are interested in this issue. And again, um, we're not saying that all people are interested in this issue of climate, but it is becoming more prominent presents a huge opportunity, a massive opportunity, an opportunity to get engaged in many different forms of climate adaptation. And it's certainly something that, yeah, we as UNICEF are very, very, very supportive of. So I see that part of the opportunity side to be important to emphasize on this podcast, that we're not just talking here about a challenge. We're talking about investment opportunities and we're talking about the potential that these cities can give for the children and the youth uh, of the future. Maitas, do you have anything to add to that? Maybe on opportunities, what are the opportunities that you see from an investment perspective? Yeah, uh, what Samuel just said was hugely inspiring and I would agree, but there's also a huge opportunity here. You know, when I speak to investors about emerging markets, they often talk about a lost decade of growth. 
And, you know, particularly in the post-COVID landscape as well, when we think about where human development levels have moved, they say back to the 1998 levels when the World Bank first started measuring some of these areas, a huge increase in poverty, inequality across these regions, it's very easy to be very negative. But I think what we're seeing here, and, you know, particularly from Lisa, about the huge groundswell of young people in these countries, which are a growing proportion of the population wanting to make that change, that makes me hugely positive. And that's why on our side, we really do focus on the importance of education, access to health, etc., because I think this is where we're going to see the difference. And in the context of a green economy as well, there's also going to be huge opportunities for stimulating growth and innovation and employment as well. Lisa, what is one piece of advice you would you would give us or you'd give our listeners in this aspect? Well, I would like to say that climate change does present an opportunity in all the challenges that come with it. It presents an opportunity and we need to look at it not as a problem that we cannot deal with, but something that presents us an opportunity to do better to better our lives, better our environment that we are in, in all the sectors that are there, health, education, infrastructure, tourism, all the sectors that are there, those are the opportunities that we have. And as leaders, they need to take this into consideration that young people are not demanding something, you to do something to address climate justice issues. Not that you will not have the benefit from this, but you will also benefit because the environment is for everyone. The environment is a capital for whatever uh, development that we have. And a safe and clean environment, a healthy environment, uh, will help us to go a long way in achieving the sustainable development that we always talk about. So let us see this with a positive mind. Let us support the initiatives that are being done by young people. Let us not see them as people that are causing us problems but people that are trying to help us to do better, to help us to create a safe environment for even your grandchildren, because you might think that this is ending now. But no, you have to address this issue now. We have to invest in the green economy so that we will have an environment that is really as self and in a very good condition as you yourselves have found it. Thank you so much, Lisa. It was really fascinating. Really, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Goodbye. This week's guests on Founding Conversation were Dr. Samuel Godfrey, Lisa Banda, Mary Therese Barton, and Christine Sandstrom. This series is brought to you by the Bicta Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with How to Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers were me, Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, and Vasily Cristodulu, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.